Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 171, for the 29th of October, 2014. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and this week I only have Paul Ducklin with me. Well, good to hear from you again, Paul. Hello, Chester. You're back in Chicago. I am. The windy city, I believe. I can't get enough of Chicago, so it was very easy to say yes to this trip. Is it true that it's called the Windy City not only because it does sometimes get windy across the lake, but because of the 19th century penchant of its politicians for being windbags? That is accurate to my understanding. Uh, it, it, in fact, is a bit windy physically, but I don't think that has anything to do with it being a windy city. I think you're right. <laughs> Funny how metaphors in real life line up. Well, the funny thing to me is, of course, that uh, being out and about today uh, around Chicagoland, uh, I have not run across any sandworms, but that is one of the topics we need to talk about in this week's Chat Chat. Yes, I think they live on desert planets, not next to enormous lakes. <laughs> in fact, doesn't water kill a sandworm? In this case, the sandworms are targeting Microsoft PowerPoint. We have CVE 2014-4114. And there was sort of a follow-up to it that isn't exactly the one that was called Sandworm, I don't think, but maybe you can clarify that, which was CVE 2014-6352. How worried should we be? I mean, is this a widespread thing? I mean, are we really, I mean, we, t we joke about death by PowerPoint. Is it really that bad? <laughs> uh, not really. It's, uh, the problem is that if you remember that 4114 vulnerability was, the idea was you, you get a PowerPoint file, it has buried in it a link to an inf file and a gif file. The gif files are disguised exe. They both get downloaded. You don't get asked. And then the inf file, it can't run the gif file, but it can rename it to exe and set an entry in the registry for it to run later. So it's a kind of delayed action exploit that allows malware to be injected, a drive-by install of a, of a slow sort, if you like. Uh, that was patched in Patch Tuesday, so everyone was calm about it. But it turns out that there's actually another way in which things can be packaged that wasn't dealt with reliably by the original patch. So there's this 6352 vulnerability for which Microsoft has a fix-it. And a fix-it is one of those things you go to a special web page and there are two buttons, apply the fix-it, unapply the fix-it. So it's a pretty low-risk thing to do. So one imagines that there'll be another patch next month that will knock this thing on the head forever. These are the kinds of things that can be really annoying for IT people to track down as well when it has that delayed deployment mechanism you talked about because it's not like you open the file, something bad happens, you panic and you pick up the phone and dial the extension for the IT guys and go, oh my god, I opened a poisoned attachment and bad stuff's happening to my computer, right? Like you open the thing and then a day later you reboot and then bad things happen. So it's often difficult to find the source of these types of things. You're quite right, and it's, I'm sure that the attackers would have preferred a more direct way into your computer because that means they don't, A, they don't have to wait, and B, there's less to go wrong. But you're right that there is a kind of hidden benefit here, that it does disconnect the vehicle for infection with the actual time of infection. Well, and since we're discussing Microsoft stuff, I think, you know, it's fair to say that in this case, you know, get the fixes, as always, be cautious about unsolicited attachments. And don't rely on, you know, spelling mistakes and things, although those can be key indicators. They're not reliable indicators. Uh, Microsoft's also publishing some advice from their own security research department. So our own Mark Stockley did a great write-up on Naked Security covering this password research, which is a personal passion of mine. So I get 
very animated, and, and I probably should disclose to listeners in the preparation for this podcast that when, when the story came up, uh, I was dancing around the room and excitedly yelling into the phone about my opinions on this one. So maybe I'll let you introduce the research a bit and I'll express some of my opinions. Loosely speaking, the way the, what I got out of Microsoft's research is that actually there are two sorts of password. There's one that only has to withstand a, a, an online attack, like the uh, say the pin on a sim card in your phone you know it, it can be four or five characters after three errors the sim locks and that's that you can't you can't have a fourth fifth sixth seventh go and there's an offline attack where someone steals say a big database of hashes and then they throw some password cracking machine at it for as long as they like you know so differentiating between those two sorts of attack it's important to understand that difference um <laughs> What I didn't like, and you know, in the same way that you didn't about this research, is this idea that, hey, if we spend all of our time worrying about protecting all of our accounts and all of making all of our passwords able to resist this this offline attack where we have to deal with trillions of possible passwords, hey, we're just wasting our time. Let's let's divvy up our passwords into. I think the terms they used were important and lower consequence or don't care accounts. And you and I have discussed this so many times. If an account has a password, it can't be a don't care account, can it? I mean, it's almost a matter of definition. If it's a don't care account, then it doesn't need a password at all. And if it's asking you to provide one, you may as well do it decently. The problem is a lot of it depends on system administrators uh, securing their end of the connection in a bargain that you're not really at the table negotiating. Every time I sign up for a website, I don't have any power over whoever runs that website to ensure that they're following best practice when storing my password. So I have to assume that they're not doing it correctly because the evidence shows almost all the organizations that have been breached in a public way the last few years have been caught out not storing passwords correctly. And that goes for startup companies all the way on up to Adobe. So when we look at it in that perspective, as a user, I have to assume that the right thing isn't being done on the back end. I don't know if there's rate limiting to slow down an online attack. I don't know if they have alarms in place to prevent that type of a brute force against my accounts. And even with big companies with a lot of focus on them, we hear this frequently in the media. When, when the Apple iCloud furor over stolen nude photos came up a, a month and a half ago, the immediate assumption that people made was, well, the Find My iPhone service from Apple doesn't do rate limiting. And of course, good on Apple, they went and fixed it. You know, major services like that often don't have these basic protective measures in place. So I have to look at the world as a pretty dangerous place and decide that, gee, if I'm not really sure that others are behaving well, the only thing I can do is make sure I behave well. Yes. And in, the, in this Microsoft paper, they actually discuss this issue of the law of diminishing returns, uh, exactly as we found and produced some beautifully shaped graphs in that Philips breach from a couple of years ago, I had a go at cracking the passwords. Almost immediately, I got to the to the 50% point. And thereafter, I kind of really could have given up. An hour later, I had 1% more. And then 10 hours later, I had another 1% and so on. So unfortunately, it is like that old joke about outrunning the lion, isn't it? <laughs> you know, the two guys about to be attacked by a lion and one's putting his running shoes on. And the other guy says, you'll never outrun the lion. And he says, I don't have to outrun the lion, mate. I just have to outrun you. If you're at the diminishing return ends of the curve, you are less likely to get hacked. 
Well, and that kind of leads into our next story, which I think is a pretty interesting thing, right? So there's a, a group of companies out there, including Microsoft, which I expect these researchers may have been involved in uh, some of the discussions around, considering it's about passwords again, called the FIDO Alliance. And, uh, you know, FIDO consists of a lot of big tech companies. If I'm not mistaken, it includes Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Twitter, and many others who kind of came together and put a little bit of a their best engineering effort into what can we do to um, be as frictionless as possible, I guess, to quote Apple and Facebook and the way they like to do things, but provide enhanced security. And so they got together and created this group called FIDO, which sounds like they're promoting uh, dog food. Um, but what they're really promoting is a universal two-factor solution. Instead of carrying around uh, 43 different tokens on your keychain, one from your bank, one from your office, one from your favorite online role-playing game, etc. They want to come up with one token to rule them all, if you will. I guess it's sort of like uh, the precious from Lord of the Rings. And, you know, I think they're off to an interesting start. I'm, I'm not sure people are ready for two-factor. I mean, you and I talk about it a lot in a very positive way here on the podcast. But, you know, there is resistance from the general population about anything that makes it more difficult to do their favorite things. This is the HID sort, isn't it? The USB human interface device. Basically a slim little USB key, and when you plug it in, it basically pretends to be a keyboard, or it is effectively a keyboard without keys, and it types in at the right moment uh, the magic code that you would otherwise have to transcribe, say, from an SMS. Absolutely, yeah. And, and there's, you know, there's several different ways these tokens can be used. Um, there's an NFC option to make it compatible with NFC-enabled smartphones. As you say, you can stick it into a USB port and you can tap on it. And they're quite, uh, they're available in, you know, multiple form factors. Uh, right now, there's primarily one manufacturer making these tokens, uh, a company called Ubico. But because the standard is an open specification published by the FIDO Alliance, uh, everyone is welcome to come to the table and manufacture things that are compliant with the specification. So we'll probably see a lot of creative efforts at making it easy to use the second factor. Let's hope that they do something about the firmware on this device that means that it can't be bad USB, eh? Yeah, that would be a bad scene, wouldn't it? Uh, <laughs> I acquired one of these UTF tokens last week when they first came out, and I have to say they're pretty neat. The one I have is about the size of my thumbnail, uh, so it's very small, hanging on my keychain from a little piece of string. Now, this UTF or U2F, I've seen it written, that's universal two-factor, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, that, that's what you need to look for. You, you you use one that can support multiple services in the same way that the authenticator apps you get, like the Google Authenticator, the Sophos Authenticator, whatever, they, you can actually use them for 20 different services without having to have a program for everyone. Yeah, that's the idea. I mean, currently it's primarily implemented in uh, Google's Chrome browser as a, a kind of unlock my browser password store. And it can also be used with things like LastPass or other password vault services that are out there. Now that they're available and being pushed by um, a company as big as Google with as much market share as Chrome has, we're hoping to see uh, other FIDO Alliance members start offering it as an option. So you may see in your Facebook settings, uh, security settings, um, you know, the ability to enroll your token. Or you may see something like that on Twitter or, say, maybe Microsoft's uh, Outlook.com or Hotmail service. And if I'm not wrong, um, there are even WordPress plugins for this sort of technology, aren't there? So if you, even if you're running your own boutique blogging site or web service, you can have two-factor authentication using exactly the same technology. 
Well, that's the beauty of the open specifications is anybody can implement it without a license. So um, I use these tokens with the secure shell into my Unix and Linux servers. Um, so it's very extensible. And because it's open, it also should keep the price down, right? Traditional tokens have often been quite expensive. There's patent fees in there. There's all kinds of different reasons for those, those uh, things to be more expensive. But again, with something that's an open specification, there's going to be a lot of competition out there making these things, right? And that should get the price down nice and low. And last but not least, we always like to end the chat chat on an upbeat if we can. And we all kind of feel good about crooks getting in trouble. In this case, it was these people pretending to be Windows support. I've noticed they don't call themselves Microsoft support. They're always Windows support when they call up telling you you have a virus on your computer and they're going to help you out. I mean, are they going to do time? Like, what, what, what's going to happen to these guys? I mean, we, it, it, we, most of us assume these guys are never going to get caught. First, I just considered a massive victory that, that they were identified and that somebody in the government's, you know, looking into it. Well, these guys uh, weren't operating out of India, which is where most of these fake call centers seem to operate from. Uh, they were actually based in Albany in New York. That meant that they fell under the jurisdiction of the uh, Federal Trade Commission, the FTC. Quite a lot of money involved here in just about two and a half years. They pulled in just about two and a half million dollars. And as you say, this is that scam where they, they're from Windows or they're working with Microsoft or some kind of legal weasel words and then go on to sell you a pack of lies. There's malware on your computer. Pay a fee and we'll fix it. The FTC has actually made a statement to say we look forward to getting consumers money back in their pockets because they've frozen the guy's assets and it looks as though they're going to have to pay the money back. We're running a poll on Naked Security. If you're interested, uh, jump on and you can say what sort of penalties you think courts should hand out. Is giving the money back enough, considering that it wasn't yours in the first place? And uh, in the lead at the moment is that people seem to think these guys should have custodial sentences. Only way to get them to stop, apparently. So whatever you think about crime and punishment, there does seem to be a bit of a groundswell of opinion that says that these guys belong in jail. Well, I cast my vote, but I'll keep my opinions to myself until the poll is complete. That does conclude Sofa Security Chat Chat 171. As always, this podcast is available over on iTunes or on the TuneIn app or at soundcloud.com slash Security. And for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Until next time, stay secure.